Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. And hello, everybody. Welcome back. We are having a follow-up to the very, very epic May episode of Only Forward. Um, and for those of you who are listening at the moment, we're also going to be recording this again as a video and hosted on YouTube. Um, but for now, I'd like uh, to welcome back the panel from our last episode. Uh, and we have innovator and resident philosopher, co-founder of Phase One Insights, Tim Rayner. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Jen. Great to be here. Awesome. Also, back in the back in the ring for round two is communications and collaborations expert Melissa Dark of Commonplace Communications and also Busting Silos. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks, Jen. And lastly, a very warm welcome back to Haley Lewis of Halo Psychology, who is an esteemed organisational psychologist, my favourite one on tap, who you may know from her very clever sketch notes of research articles. Welcome, Haley. Hello, thank you for having me. Super. Now, I've got to share with you listeners, um, our intent with this was to review the last three months against what we said in our Only Forward episode, which we recorded back in May, um, you know, and look at what stood up, what didn't, you know, did anybody actually listen to our advice? Were we surprised by what happened? But last week we gathered to just uh, review notes and check in with each other. And there was a really interesting turn of events. Now, Hayley, you weren't with us, but Melissa and Tim was. Um, perhaps, Melissa, would you like to share what went on when I asked, how do you feel about what we recorded in May? Uh, sure, sure. I think, um, I think our overall reflections were... Um, well, certainly mine were that um, I was horribly optimistic <laughs> last time we met and um, and that uh, I, I felt a great deal of um, humility, I suppose, around uh, some of the solutions and ideas that I had at the time because we were trying to predict, you know, what things were looking like and we said a lot about, you know, what might come next, assuming that we were sort of through things and coming out the other side and hasn't exactly turned out to be correct. So I guess in comparison to last time where I felt like I was really quite optimistic, I think this time I'm feeling a bit more pessimistic, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for that, Melissa. Tim, what, what was going on for you when we caught up? Uh, well, I've always been a bit of a pessimist, so um, I, I haven't been too surprised by the way things have gone since. But um, I, I guess I have been feeling a bit um, stuck insofar as, um, I, I mean, I, I, I teach leadership and I, I, I try to enact the principles of leadership. I talk to a lot of leaders. And... My overarching impression of what's happening in the moment is that people are just a bit paralyzed by the deep uncertainty of the situation. Um, you know, it's easy to um, take a sort of a sort of an abstract critical perspective on that and, and offer advice. But I guess when we met and I reflected on what I had to offer, I realized that I'm 
also feeling quite paralyzed by uncertainty and unsure of what to say, what to offer. Mm, mm. It, it was interesting because um, for the listener's benefit, um, I'm in Melbourne. We are currently two and a half weeks into a stage four lockdown, which is, you know, quite quite restrictive. We've got curfews. We can't travel more than five kilometres. We can only have an hour of outside exercise a day. Um, and there's only four reasons why you can leave your house a lot more businesses have had to shut down as a, as a result of this. Um, and I think for me what happened when stage four happened was this dawning realisation of, okay, this is the cycles that we're now going to go through, that I may have once had a story in my head which was we can just get through this and stay calm and push through Um will come out the other end okay. And when stage four, the reality of stage four hit us, there was this question of, you know, for someone who was always quite optimistic, um, oh, this is what pessimism feels like, you know. And I had I had one of my friends say to me, um, you know, World War II, they went through this for five years. You know, lives were lost, workplaces had to change considerably, um, they didn't, they weren't, supply chains were disrupted, you know, and this went on for five years. And, you know, that, that conversation was really quite daunting for me. Um, and it kind of happened at the same time that I'd been having this really strong <sighs> puzzlement verging on scorn for why are leaders just focusing on tightening belts and no long-term planning or why aren't they looking for opportunities? And they're certainly not looking at how do we redesign the organisation, you know, as, as a result of this. Um, and then I sort of stopped and went, well, crap, if I'm feeling this way, who am I to expect leaders to be feeling any different? And and I think as, as we had this chat last week, there was this sense of, well, do we do this recording or are we charlatans? Um, or is this actually a really important conversation to have publicly? So I'm kind of curious, Haley, with your psychology hat on, um, and you know you weren't in last week's conversation. What do you, how do you make sense of of what we've shared? I think there's a I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think first of all, it's to be expected that that we're all feeling this way. Um, there was a, I came across a really interesting article from INSEAD um, by a professor of neuropsychology who was talking about the way our brains are wired and because of the amount of stress and uncertainty people are facing at the moment, the, the kind of the feelings of confusion and in some instances depression are to be expected and we shouldn't necessarily rail or fight against that, but recognise that that's a natural part of, I want to say journey, but journey doesn't feel the right word, but you know what I'm saying. It's a natural part of what's happening. It's a way that our our minds protect us um, and help us make sense of that. So I think that's the first thing. It's how we're all feeling is perfectly natural. Um, and as you were as you were talking, Jen, um, you used the word humility. Uh, I think it was maybe Melissa who used it as well. 
at the beginning. And what's been really interesting to me, and I don't know if Tim's been finding this as well, because I know Tim does a lot of work around leadership, is looking at organisational political leaders and how they're how well or not they're handling what's going on. And I think one of the things I'm consistently seeing is either humility or a lack of. So when we have humble leaders, humble leaders are much more likely to say, do you know what? I don't have the answers about how the hell we're going to get out of this, but I'm going to speak to people who might well do. And then you have those who feel they have to be that strong leader and have all the answers. And I think we could make a good guess as, as to which country and which organisations have which type of leader at the moment. So those are the two things that have kind of popped into my, my head hearing yeah. what you're saying. Well, it's it's interesting. That's one of the things that we were sharing because we were looking at some of the things we've seen in the three months. One of the things I've seen is there's some of the leaders who, you know, are very much embodying this autocrat on steroids, um, so quite the opposite of the humble leader and not listening to their leadership teams, um, making wildly bizarre decisions that, you know, make no sense with strategy or any of the foundations they've built in their organisations. And, you know, this, so it really illustrates, it, it, might, it may not, we may not have, it may be a bit difficult to guess which countries that's happening in because I suspect mm. it might be happening in all, you know, that's that's a pattern we're seeing. So I think um, I think this means that, you know, obviously we're going ahead with this podcast, but what it does mean that, you know, this episode comes to you from a position of learning out loud and deep humility. Um, because if if the four of us as leaders in our occupational spaces are feeling this way, then, then it's um, a no-brainer that it's occurring in organisations. And so what we thought we'd do with this episode is is also unpack what, how personally, what were the tools and strategies that, the four of us are personally using to navigate our way only forward at the moment. But before we get into some of those, um, if we look at some of the key takeaways from last time, let's just check in of do they still hold up or were they wrong, right? So um, we talked about the importance of having a transition period and revisiting purpose um does anybody want to speak to that in terms of where you see that playing out did did they did did firms have a transition period and did they focus on purpose well, Haley? A yep. few, yeah a few of my clients so I, I i think as i said in the previous episode the bulk of my clients are public sector um, I work across other sectors as well, but the bulk of public. And I think when we spoke back in May, lots of my leadership clients were like, yeah, I know I'm dealing with a crisis in front of me, but I, we need to look at recovery plan and a transition. And and I think it's I think it's safe to say that those conversations are still happening now in August, but it's almost like the timetable keeps having to shift. Hmm. Um, and obviously with a lot of, well, with all organisations, you can't just look in. This is a conversation I've been having with a lot, a lot of organisations. I think those that just look in and look at their systems within and their departments and their processes 
are in in serious danger if they haven't already shut down. Those that look up and out at what others are doing and how that might impact their system, so government decisions, policy changes, those that are consistently looking up and out and paying attention, um, I think are better able to navigate that transition. So the transition's got longer um, and the importance of kind of looking up and out consistently. Yeah, it's a nice insight, actually. Yeah. Melissa, do you have any thoughts on either what Hayley shared or what we said last time? It's Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I was thinking that um, that one of the things from last time we talked a lot about purpose and, and that um, being connected to purpose was sort of more important than ever. And to a certain extent, I, I think that's still true. I think the organisations that are really connected to who they, you know, to that organisational DNA and very clear on it uh, are possibly doing better. But at the same time, I think what we also have seen really interestingly in the last few months is some organisations that have radically changed what they do and been really successful at it. Mm. I'm thinking in, in Melbourne there's a company called Stage Kings that um, that are responsible for doing staging for large events, so concerts and things like that, and they transitioned into using all of their equipment and their people to make desks and home office equipment and they've been really successful and so I guess that's an example of like if they'd stuck to their original purpose <laughs> they'd be they'd be you know still sitting around twiddling their thumbs with no work to do so um so I think I think it's very um it's very interesting that sense of of um knowing who you are and being really true to it in a way that's Does that make sense? Can you just repeat the end of your sentence for where you froze? Oh, sorry. Um, it, it's about being true to yourself but not bloody-minded about it. Like it's being true to yourself but sensible about it. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice. So we also talked about, um, you know, and I think, Tim, you were really strong on this, the, the human-centred organisation, um, and I think we all spoke about self-compassion and being conscious of pacing, what's how you know? Would how would you give the organisations a, a mark on in regards to those attributes? In in terms of self compassion, yeah. Um, look, I I think on the whole, um, leaders are doing a pretty good job of that, um, but I'm not sure that they they are really connecting the right dots at this point, at least not in Australia. And, and I would link it back to what Hayley um, and Melissa were saying about purpose. I, I think that uh, I, I'm hearing a lot of talk about um, um, focusing the organization on uh, sort of big purposive goals, getting people, um, reminding people about what the, the organization is really about. But I, I don't I don't think I'm hearing a lot about reinventing the organization to make it more human-centered. Um, and I think that's, it's, that, that's a real missed opportunity. I think, I think that, I mean, leadership is fundamentally care. It's fundamentally about looking after the people who are with you, the person to the left, the person to the right, taking them on a journey, giving them meaning, giving them purpose through those everyday activities that you conduct. 
in the workplace. I think for a long time, many organizations, they've had their goal. It's way out there in the future. They're charging towards it. Um, and they're just kind of feeding people these little hits of purpose saying, come on, team, you know, let's keep on going. We just need to get there. The game has changed completely. Um, you can't see all the way to the future now. We're like scuba divers in murky water. We can just see a few feet ahead. And leaders need to like pull their focus in. And in thinking about purpose, they need to zero in on the people that they're with. And they need to think about how can, how can I re restructure this organization to make it an organization that is deeply compassionate, that is deeply rewarding for the people who are there, so that when we come out of this thing, we're a different kind of organization, really committed to purpose, you know, from the ground up, from our everyday activities, from the way that we relate to each other in the workplace and work together. Um, so yes to purpose, but let's just kind of pull our focus in and, and think about creating purpose within the workplace. I think that will set us in good stead going mm -hmm. forward. Mm. I think in, in general, like if, if we think about that self-compassion thing, I think in general um, people really embraced that strongly over the last three months. Um, I've seen a lot more relaxing of perfectionism and acceptance of, you know, where they're at, of people being really comfortable at pushing back on, um, you know, no, actually, I need to have my video off because I've got a load of washing behind me. And, you know, and I think the remote working created and the remote working and the schooling requirements and, and all the other negotiations created this necessity for self-compassion that, you know, people learnt self-compassion through going through that process. Or that's what I feel like. Well, I, I know I did. I, I really leaned heavily into it, but I was seeing it in a lot of other people that I was having conversations with and, and meetings. Um, Melissa or Haley, any thoughts on that? The state of self-compassion in the last three months? I think um, I, I agree with what you said. I think that, that there has been um, more of it evident but I what I'd also say is that I think I've also seen it more directed outwards so there's just more kindness going on I I think which is great um I think that we're we've become just much more forgiving of each other um I was in a meeting uh the other day which was pretty high stakes it was preparing for a, a pitch to clients and everyone you know was pretty desperate to win this work and and there was a lot of pressure and the lead person on the call um you know everyone working from home had a child constantly yelling mom 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 in the background wanting to pull her out and um she said excuse me I've just got to you know deal with this and and the conversation after she left was oh we feel sorry for her basically support her that's really hard you know it's really tricky for her no frustration hey this is important you know get back to the computer um, which was kind of lovely especially in a stressful situation where you know it's easy to kind of um, let go of that so that I think is nice and something we we needed anyway. <laughs> it's not something we should have to wait for a pandemic to have happen. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that that expression into kindness has been kind of a an upside. It's interesting. I was going to say something completely different from Melissa. Go for it. I think um, yes, we've been seeing 
increase in self-compassion. I think in some instances I've seen that border on self-obsession. Um, I haven't, I'm beginning to see compassion for others wane. Um, and the reason I, you know, that how I'm seeing that is I am now working with lots of middle managers who are, if they're not, if they're not burnt out already, they are absolutely hurtling towards burnout. And it's because they're not experiencing a lot of compassion from their bosses. Um, and, and people have, have fallen into that trap of, and feel unable to get out of the trap of, back-to-back -back meetings which we would have had in real life have now kind of gone to zoom people feel unable to push back because it seems unacceptable so actually i'm i'm not seeing huge amounts of com compassion or i'm seeing it wane um and um that worries me a lot because i'm dealing with the fallout i just want to take a couple of steps back though because there's something that tim said really struck me he, I loved the analogy of the scuba diver in murky water. And that got me thinking around managers and leaders having to trust their instincts a bit more. Because when you said that, Tim, I had the Jaws music in my head. You don't know what's out there in the murk. And it kind of got me thinking that certainly lots of the managers and leaders that, that I work with, and, and I think as a culture in the UK, we're very rule-oriented, so policy and process, and if it's not on a policy or a process. Um, and the rules have kind of, there are no rules. It feels like very Game of Thrones. There are no rules anymore. And you have to trust your instinct. And so how do we help managers and leaders learn to re-listen mm to their instinct when they can't see in that murk around them. So that that, that really kind of resonated mm. with me. Mm. Um, I think we, you know, so we talked about the importance of mindfulness as a tool in to, to I guess part of what you're saying, Hayley, is, you know, recognising the role that our brains take during crisis and, the amygdala hijack and how important it was going to be to tap into mindfulness as a way to create a steady state for our brains to be healthy. Um, did you see an uptick in it? Do you think people were practising their mindfulness more? Not enough in my book. But then, I, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see everybody. I can only yeah. kind of... You see the ones in trouble. On the people in front of me. Yeah. Certainly, I, I'm a big proponent of mindfulness and, and mindfulness meditation. I, I've done it myself for the last eight years. Um, I feel it when I don't do my daily practice. It's something that I recommend to a lot of clients, and I can see the benefits for that, the, the impact for those who do do it and those who don't bother. Mm. But I think people have to come to that own their, that that space themselves uh, in their own time. Um, well, I think it, it raises the difference between medicinal mindfulness where you're doing it for that purpose of making yourself better or feel better versus mindfulness in its true essence, you know, that tapping into a state of equanimity because you are much more conscious of, of everything that happens. You're, you're more present. Um, Tim, you, you, you're located in Mindfulness Centre of Australia. 
Uh, <laughs> got any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, look, I'm I'm a sort of a struggling mindfulness practitioner myself, um, uh, and I certainly I, I I think that cultivating presence and and calm and compassion and gratitude is absolutely vital for for me when dealing with stress and uncertainty. Um, as I, I, I imagine it's vital for others too. But look, I think, I think really we're talking about leaders here. I, I, the problem I have with a lot of mindfulness discourse is that sometimes mindful, often mindfulness is presented as something you do when you're taking time out. You know, you go and sit on a, on a, on a mountain and you, and you just re, recalibrate and, and get ready to come back into battle. But what, what, I think what leaders need is more like the mindfulness of the warrior, um, uh, because they are in battle and, um, you know, they are like that scuba diver who's in the murky water. And as Haley says, there could, there could be a big shark just out of view and, and they have to be sort of wide awake. I, I, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a scuba, scuba diver as well as a mindfulness practitioner. And I love the, that experience of being down there in, in the depths and not really knowing my way around. I feel at once incredibly calm and incredibly centered, but at the same time, somehow like accelerated, excited, and, and my senses are heightened. And I think that's the kind of mindfulness that we need to cultivate at the moment, a sort of a, a slightly heightened sensibility that is yet 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 present and composed yeah. and calm it's it's a hard balance to achieve i think um some of this taps into you know resilience and and how resilient were we over the last three months um melissa you were sharing earlier you've, you've been coaching a leadership team um across some modules and training in resilience and they'd shared some feedback with you without naming them can you can you share a little bit of of what they'd said yeah look i think um i think it was interesting their reaction to this one of the um participants was very struck by um uh, an element in the learning called gratitude builds resilience and had actually uh, written that up as a poster on the wall for her team and introduced it as a um, standing agenda item in their team meetings and that they were every second team meeting they were finishing by going around and everyone had to name something they were grateful for. And um, she said at first people were a bit, um, a bit resistant to it. They thought it was a bit dumb, a bit twee. Um, but she said that it's actually over t over time, and by time I mean just weeks, the last few weeks, um, it's really become kind of quite an essential thing and, and staff comment on it now and say that they do it at home with their children and, um, and that it's really been sort of such a valuable thing to start thinking about in these, in these weird times that we're in. And, um, and she even had a staff member come to her who was, you know, having... A bad day and lots of problems and he goes I know I know I've just got to think of something to be grateful for <laughs> and uh, I just I thought that was lovely that something so so simple could um, could have such an impact for people so I think sometimes mindfulness can be a bit of a scary concept for people who aren't familiar with it and it you know conjures ideas of 
of, you know, gurus sitting cross-legged for hours on an end. Um, but, you know, something as simple as that, a gratitude practice, I mean, in a way, that's a form of mindfulness of just, you know, taking a moment to to centre and, and be back where you are and think about um, what's going on for you. So just a simple practice like that can be really valuable. Nice. So tell me, um, what surprised you over the last three months? What did you see that really surprised you? And I'll let you show me who wants to go first on that question rather than throw that at you. For the listeners, we have looks of deep thinking. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Tim, talk to us. Look, I, I'm not sure if this was a deep surprise for me, um, but it was, it, was a, it was quite a reminder and a bit of a wake-up call, really. I, um, when we last spoke, uh, I was... I was advocating innovation. I was advocating that leaders return to a, a startup mindset and think about creating like crisis response teams to, to innovate their way out of uncertainty. And um, I, I thought that was probably a bit of a stretch even at the time. Not, not, there aren't so many companies that are really game for that kind of organizational renewal, even though it's absolutely vital in my view. Um, uh, but I was I, I I was struck and I'm still struck at the 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 sort of the deep inertia amongst leaders um, to this point in the crisis, uh, which is almost like this sort of unconscious resistance to the very idea of trying to do something differently. Um, I've spoken to a number of leaders who still seem to have this kind of hibernation mindset. They're they're just sort of tightening their belts and, and battening down the hatches and let's wait and see this thing can't last forever kind of thing. And I think there is something deeply unreasonable about that. And um, it's really made me think more deeply about, um, you know, uh, neuropsychology and, and uh, the human, deeply ingrained human resistance to, um, to, to, to accepting change and the need for change. Mm. Mm. We could talk for a long time about that, but um, Haley, you're perhaps either building off that or something else that surprised you in the last three months. So the thing that surprised me, because I like to, I've always liked to think that I'm quite a savvy person, and the thing that I've been surprised by is how utterly naive. I've been and am about the extent of and the impact of privilege. Mm -hmm. So I think I touched on it yeah. in May. And I think with various events we've seen over the past few months, I've really seen that heightened through my own work um, and the decisions that are being made. So I'll give you an example of how I've seen privilege play out so I got approached by one very large organization large public sector organization and the chief executive jumped to this is brilliant everyone working home everyone's so productive and blah 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 and that's it now we'll never go back this is a big public sector organization that's it so commissioned their head of OD to do a piece of research um, into why everybody forever should work from home 
and I had to have a very tough speak truth to power moment. It's chief executive, highly educated, white, middle class male in their 50s. Um, didn't understand that, for example, some of their social workers in their 20s live in shared accommodation. I had a call with a social worker where she was sat on the stairs mm. with her laptop because she lived in shared accommodation. Her boyfriend had nabbed the room first because he was on a call first with his boss. Mm. And so there's something about how privilege is playing out in some of the innovation, the innovation or new ways of working that leaders think we now need to work to because isn't it all wonderful well no it's actually not for a lot of people mm. and that's got me thinking about my positions that I take as a practitioner um, and I feel a little bit ashamed mm. actually about some of the recommendations I've made so yeah that's that's kind of where my head's at Mm. at the moment i've been i've been surprised at my my own naivety and the naivety of others around privilege gotcha. mm. yeah. look i think for myself i think i've i've been surprised by my own and and other people's idea that this is we're facing kind of a linear problem that that has a beginning a middle and an end and and I think if I when I was looking back on on listening back to to our previous chat that, that kept coming back into my head that I thought I was in the middle of a story then that was coming to an end <laughs> and that was clearly not the case like here we are you know three months later and we're still in the middle really um with no end you know, in sight, and um, and so I think um, I think that makes things really tricky for all sorts of all sorts of things, but especially decision making. And I know we've touched on decision making a little bit and the murky waters and stuff. And probably I think we're going to probably explore that a little bit more. But um, I think um, yeah, that the the idea that it's not linear, and and also that you can go backwards, like in Melbourne, for example, which seemed to to progress through um, to a great stage and then regressed. And New Zealand has done the same thing. And so that, that's that been the, the sort of bit of a wake-up call for me is just to try and remember that, you, you know, it's not a nice easily plotted story and, you know, what page you're on <laughs> anymore. Could I just jump in there? Um, I I think that the uh, there's a really interesting um, comparison to be made between the way that Australia and New Zealand framed the crisis. Um, the uh, the Morrison government came out with a roadmap to to recovery. Uh, that was always their focus. It was it was a road we were travelling down. It had various stages, and and it was linear. So I think it's not surprising that many of us did just adopt that mindset. And now we feel like we're going backwards. New Zealand didn't have that approach. They had a series of, of levels. And they were very clear about what each level uh, entailed in terms of your, your, your responsibilities uh, as a citizen and so forth. Um, so, and I, th I think that really sort of subtly but decisively reframes the whole thing. At, at the moment, I have family in Auckland. They're back in lockdown. They know it's just going to be temporary. Um, but I'm not sure they, they, they think of it as a matter of going backwards. They've just shifted into back, they've shifted back to that level they were in. And I think they acknowledge that as 
the country goes on, there will be a lot of like shuttling between these levels. I don't know if it makes a huge difference uh, all told, but I think it's a subtle difference in the way that the whole situation is framed. And stories obviously are really important the way we understand things. I think that's really interesting, yeah. I think um, some of the things that have shocked me, and, and this plays to my um, naivety, optimism bias. So, you know, I remember way back then in April I'd written that there'd be four hours of organisational change, there'd be reimagining and reintegration and whatever my other two hours were. Um, and, in fact, what we saw was organisational change stopped unless it was mission critical and enabling a remote workforce, it stopped. So change consultants weren't being asked to help in how do we create this new future for our organisation, this opportunity. Change managers were stood down from projects. You know, it was this real bunker down mentality at a time when, you know, intellectually the opportunities have never been more rich. You know, you, you know when you've got a destabilised system, you can create a lot of change. Um, and so we had this incredibly destabilised system, but the response was to lock it down. Um, and I think, you know, it was interesting because I was chatting with one leader and his mindset was a real exception to what I was hearing from others because he said, look, we made sure that our employees were safe. We made sure our customers were safe. We made sure our supply chains were safe. And then we accelerated every big moonshot idea we'd ever had of how we were going to build this organisation further, you know, and we'd been given a gift um, that we had licence to do things that everybody would have pushed back on. And I just, I, I loved hearing that story, but, gee, it's been a rare story. I think we've all, what surprised me also is I guess some of the um, the cultural nuances of this and how this plays out. So I've seen organisations where despite the government saying everybody should be working from home, they're organising lawyers to try and find loopholes on that and they want their employees in at the workplace and not surprisingly the workers don't feel particularly safe psychologically or physically but when you look at the the cultural heritage of those companies, and there's been a couple that have that have bubbled up in this space, they've come from countries where um, crisis and war is the norm, and so there's this sense that what Australians are being asked to do is really quite soft, and you know we're a bunch of sooks. Um, this is not what you do in you know we haven't grown up being namby-pamby to, you know, the potential loss of life. Um, and I found that really fascinating, the juxtaposition of perhaps legal frameworks in the workplace versus the cultural nuances of who the owners are and what they expect. So I didn't see that coming. <laughs> mm. um, I think the, the other thing is... Um, what I'm seeing, though, and, and this will play back to, you know, my optimism state, is the I'm seeing phases at the moment. I think March and April was very much about, holy crap, um, we're in a crisis, triage. I think May and June was steady the ship, right, and this was this we stop all organisational change. 
and, you know, our leaders are expected to steer through uncharted waters. And then July and now coming into August, we're going, oh, holy crap, our leaders actually don't have the skill set to steer through uncharted waters. How can we get them help, you know? So that's kind of, it's interesting to sort of track the data and and say what's what's happening, you know, in terms of what we're seeing. Um, one of the things, and Haley, you picked up picked up on this in you, you mentioned privilege. One of the things that has happened in the time since we met last time um, was the murder of George Floyd in the USA. So we recorded this on March uh, May twenty first, and I believe. The murder was May 25th, so you saw the rise of Black Lives or the, the invigoration and the urgency around Black Lives Matter and and certainly in Australia there was, you know, renewed focus on Indigenous deaths in custody and police brutality um, and systemic models of racism, which, you know, I guess added another layer of difficulty into what was a difficult world. Any thoughts around that? Um, and I know that's a very broad question, but in terms of, you know, if we'd seen that, yeah, where does that fit into our consciousness of leading organisations? So it's been, it's been fascinating to me because I've been watching this really closely and I've always been interested and paid attention to intersections. So I've always been interested in intersectionality because what happened to George Floyd shouldn't happen to anyone. It's interesting to me, he was a black man and you'd had the death of Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. black woman, mm. didn't have as much, obviously has had quite a lot of media attention, but not as much. So we start to see intersections come into play and stuff around class and and it's been really interesting to me seeing organizations of different sizes different sectors handle that or not mm. so i think in the middle of the pandemic when everything's already heightened you then have this and rightly so but i think that's exposed organizations even more and so those organizations who thought it was just enough to post a black square and put some platitudes have, customers are leaving them hmm. so we talked about this didn't we in may I, I said people i think are becoming much more conscious about the kind of businesses that they want to give their money to and i think this has brought this to the fore i think um, so, so that's that's one thing. I think there's also something, it's been really interesting seeing some of my fellow professionals, and you might well have seen this as well, dive into the diversity and inclusion space. Um, and I think, again, it's incumbent on us as experts to know our limits of expertise. So I've been approached by quite a few organisations saying, could you help us with diversity and inclusion? Do you do that? And I've had to say, no, that's that's absolutely not my area of expertise. I know some brilliant people who can help you. And so it's been really interesting to me seeing what I see as some shameful practice, actually, people taking advantage. The bad yeah, so so those are the things that have, I think it's exposed organisations even further, but it's also made me question some of my own peers 
in mm. my profession and how they behave. I feel like everybody's just exposed <laughs> at the moment. It, it, it was really interesting because when I looked at it and, you know, as, as a result of that, that prompted me to go deeper in my anti-racism work. And one of the things that I've learnt about it is, and I, I was looking at within my occupational space, right, so organisational change practitioners, and at the moment, you've got all of these organisational change practitioners going, well, oh, we're really good at creating change and managing change. Let us at racism. We'll be able to sort this, you know. <laughs> Let's come in with our cakes are flowing and do what we do because we do change. Um, whereas the deeper you get into it, the real you realise, you know, how, how humbling it is to know how much you don't know and that your role in being an effective ally is actually to pause and to learn before you move to action. And in recognising that, it struck me the parallels between our last call. So we're leaping into action going, woohoo, follow our advice, you know, and this is where the experts in this space. And three months later, we're going, uh, actually, we probably need to pause and reflect on our own struggle with this, you know? Um, it feels and like it there's, interesting. there's know, a model. Interesting, yeah, yeah, it was sorry to jump in, but there was I saw you post something yep. about a month ago yep. asking if there were any mm. non-white, non-Western change models, frameworks, and mm. it's, I, I've done the same thing because I've sat here thinking I lecture and Tim might have felt the same, Melissa might have felt the same. I lecture a lot on leadership and organisational development. And I realise I'm part of the. I'm, I'm just sh constantly sharing stuff from the last fifty years that comes from Ivy League, you know, Western thought yep. processes. Very white, very educated, very middle class. So I'm part of the problem because I'm sharing stuff. But when I ask, when I've been looking, what else is out there? I struggled. I've come up short, and that's you know that's that's partly down to me, but. Yeah, that's that's, and I saw that you you were struggling as well, Jen. I don't know if the other two have found that. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was um, reading the work of a design academic just yesterday who was talking about the um, the, the the lack of non-Western voices in the design thinking world. Um, I. I think this is a, a really big and important issue. Um, and the first thing I want to signal is that in, in coming from the startup and innovation world, I have to acknowledge I come from one of the you know, kind of like the, 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 the whitest, most privileged and exclusionary spaces of contemporary uh, industry. Um, huge problems there need to be, need to be addressed. Um, I, think, I think what the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to light is these, these, these massive inequalities and fault lines running through developed societies, which, you know, as, 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 as white middle-class privileged people, we mostly, to our, uh, to our shame, are quite happy to just kind of like forget about and, um, and, and you know, until there is a, a massive uh, explosion and, and suddenly we go, oh my God, this, this is, life is terrible for these people. But the reality is, the, the 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 capitalist um society that uh we all benefit from um as as professionals is premised on on structural inequality and and to a large extent structural racism too 
Um, so it's it's a very big issue. I think we need we we need to look to leaders right at the top um, of our societies for, for change in this regard. And I, I like to think that the the, the Biden Harris um, partnership in the states is is up to that challenge, and it can really lead change from the from the U.S. because that country sorely needs change. Um, I I think. Um, I think that, no, that's about all I think, actually. <laughs> I'll pass the baton to Melissa. I, I probably um, don't have a lot more to add than what's been said. I guess all I'm, I'm trying to do personally is um, to, um, I don't know, lead by example. I'm, I'm trying to educate myself and to um, learn what I can and to, give space and voices to diverse, um, you know, diverse voices when I can. So that's, yeah, I'm just trying to do the best that I can in my little circle at the moment, which I don't know if that's enough, but, yeah. Mm. Mm. Actually, I've remembered what I was thinking before. <laughs> I was going to make the point that, you know, if you look at, the, the, the history of ideas, getting a bit philosophical here, mm -hmm. you see that new, new ideas, new thinking, new knowledge um, uh, emerges out of centers of power. Uh, and so you really can't separate class and privilege from the production of knowledge. It's no surprise that when you look outside of the dominant centers um, to you know, the subaltern communities uh, of the world, you don't tend to find the same depth and richness of of ideas to draw on simply because knowledge tends to be produced in these centers of power. So I think that is precisely why it's incumbent on us to uh, really heal these these divides and 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 address social inequality, not just in nation states but but globally, if that's not too big an ask. Um, because if we do, if we do want, and we do need to draw on the, the richness and diversity of our global tribe, and the only way to really unlock all the knowledge and potential that we have in all our different cultures is to empower those different cultures and get people out of poverty, but find ways to, to actually enable them to, to become centers of, of power themselves in their own right. I think we see a lot of interesting stuff happening in China. Everyone's terrified of China, and you know, for there are there are good reasons to be worried about the Chinese government. But the, the cultural evolution um, and the, uh, the the social, technological, cultural evolutions happening in China are just mind blowing. It's just a great example of how sort of knowledge just rides in on the back of new power structures. Can I just point something yeah. out as well? So I'm, I'm going to call it out because it will no doubt somebody somewhere will put it in the comments box somewhere. There are four white faces. Mm. Brady Bunch. So um, so there's something about if we do one of these moving forward. I've really, I've really loved seeing um, it's something called Pass the Mic. Yep. Pass the Mic. So I'm happy to pass the mic to someone else if you decide to run one of these again uh jen and i'm happy for somebody different to sit in my space um who is completely different from me and has a different worldview and i have I, some I people think, that i can suggest 
I, I think that'd be fabulous. Um, I had attempted to pass the mic uh, several times. The and it's interesting. It coincides with um, there's there's uh, there's these great educators on anti-racism. One of them um, is a woman by the name of Ebony Janice Moore, who did a really powerful lecture on um, white urgency is violence, and the concept that when they did pass the mic, so I guess my interpretation, we all rushed to tap, you know, someone who was black, Indigenous, person of colour and say, please take my podcast, please take my, you know, um, and then we let it go. You know, we, we, we did our bit and then we didn't and that that's actually quite traumatic um, to black, Indigenous, people of colour. Um, and so what I've said to the people that I've offered to is like this is a anytime offer. Anytime you want to come in and take this podcast, it's yours because I recognise at the moment this heightened attention has an energetic level of demand that I, I would never experience. And so for me to say, well, look, here's my podcast, you've got to come on on the next one is actually an unfair requirement. But I thank you for bringing that up. Um, and, you know, absolutely, I, I think that would be a really important evolution of this podcast concept. Yeah. Cool. So I said at the beginning, yeah, sorry? We'd miss you, Hayley. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. They, whoever, whoever passed the mic on to, they'd be so brilliant. You'd be like, hey, you. So I want them to pass the mic on. It, it becomes yeah. a, so you get such richness of diversity, ah. diverse views. And it's not just about uh, colour either. It's, you know, it's, D it's yeah. diversity well, in all its forms neurodiversity for example i am totally down with you being my podcast booker 10 percent commission it's fine. <laughs> you get 10 percent of all the love that's fed to us exactly um, okay so we did say at the beginning of this we were going to unpack some of the tools that we personally have used over the last three months in recognizing our humility our stuckness our pessimism um Tim, do you want to kick off with what you found really helpful in personally in leading in your space? Um, yeah, well, uh, two things, I think, and, and both of them are kind of philosophical or quite philosophical. Um, the first goes back to our talk about mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness. Um, I get a lot of value out of uh, reading and and practicing Stoic philosophy, which is, I think, it tends to be misunderstood. You know, the, the, when people think of the Stoic, they think of a stiff upper lip, you know, just kind of like deal with it kind of mentality. But Stoicism is much more nuanced than that. It's really about, it centers on acknowledging just how much of life is beyond one's control um, and accepting that. Um, and focusing on what is within our control, which is our capacity to, to manage our emotional responses and, and, and fundamentally our judgments, the judgments we make about things, because often one finds if one can shift one's judgments, one shifts one's perspective on a problem and often relieves a lot of the, uh, the stress that one's dealing with. So I think stoicism is a really good um, uh, practical philosophy to look into at this point of time. Um, the, other, the other thing that's really interesting me at the moment is um, 
the work of a guy uh, called Otto Schwammer, uh, who teaches at MIT um, in the in business there. Um, he's published a book called Theory U, and it's all about this rather strange idea of learning to lead from the emerging future. Um, I think a large re part of the reason why many leaders today are struggling to engage with uncertainty is because by and large, they lead from past experience. They just think about how we've done things before and they just try and reiterate that maybe in a slightly different way. Uh, and when this, the situation is such that that no longer makes sense, many leaders find themselves a bit stumped. Um, Schwammer's idea is that when you're we're facing deep uncertainty, you have to go through a process of letting go of what you know and engaging in uh, a process of seeing and sensing what's happening around you, slowly forging impressions of what is emerging in, in this time of uncertainty. And of course, this is, this, this is best done with a team of people. Um, and then once you've identified a potential opportunity, prototyping a new way forward, testing, learning, and just slowly piecing together a new path into the future. Um, I think that's a, it's a difficult thing to do, um, but it's possibly the only way to make headway when, when you, you can't see the way ahead. You've got to do a bit of exploratory work and, and just feel your way forward as best you can. Mm -hmm. So those would be my two tools. Gotcha. Melissa? Um, I would say um, I read a really great article um, recently and I'm just going to look up the name of the author because that's the right thing to do, John Hagel, um, about the trust pyramid and he came up with a um, kind of a twist on, on different concepts of trust and at the bottom of, of the model was humility. And we talked about that right at the beginning a little bit. And um, and I've been recommending this article and talking about it with the leaders that I've been coaching and saying that I think um, now is the time for humility and humility is a great way of building trust. And I think for a lot of leaders it feels a bit counterintuitive because they feel like they should have the answers and that, and that their people are looking to them for inspiration and don't want to hear that you as a leader are actually struggling yourself and that you don't know everything. Um, but I think, you know, it only takes a brief look at the headlines and the newspapers, as we talked about earlier, just to see the different leaders around the world and those that are practising a little bit of humility um, as opposed to those that are continuing in their very patriarchal authoritarian I know everything and I have all the answers you know we're just clearly seeing the the, the success of those two approaches and um, so um, so I found that to be um, a really good and, and useful tool to, to talk to people about um, the second thing um, has really been around decision making and this is a personal thing as much as a thing I'm talking to to others about um, and that's just around the need to, to be less reliant on instinct, actually, and to, to for decision-making, to be very data-driven with your decision-making. I think 
you know, we talked about the amygdala hijack and all that sort of thing. I think the fact that emotions are so uh, heightened at the moment that, you know, our own mental states can be very chaotic just from the environment that we're in. And if you're a leader, then you've got, you know, even more pressures. And I think that it's really important to take a moment and not just react from, you know, from the hip, shoot, no shooting from the hip. It's um, take a moment, breathe, think, respond. Um, it's more important than ever to just have that moment of, of, of thinking. And, it, you know, that's, that's nothing new. It goes back to the whole thinking fast, thinking slow, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think now is the time for, for systems, um, systems two thinking about, you know, just really just taking a moment to consider the data and not just relying on your gut instinct because I think our guts are all a little bit kind of unhappy at the moment. So that's, um, yeah, that's the, the two things that I've, I've been relying on. Yeah. Hayley, what about yourself? There's um, a very simple or deceptively simple uh, technique that I've been sharing with lots of my coaching clients um, and it's one that I use myself. So I think this, uh, it's, it's a word that's popped up throughout this conversation, about being conscious and mindful. And at a time when we feel completely and utterly out of control, um, getting some semblance of control back is really important. Um, and we're not passive beings. You know, we all play a part in whatever whatever happens. We, we play our part too. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So uh, quite a few of my management uh, talk about feeling, you know, oh, I'm up till two in the morning going through my emails. And my question is, well, whose choice is that? Who's forcing you to do that? And that kind of makes people stop. And so the, the technique I've taught people is when you, the first thing is to notice that you've, you've gone into behaving in a certain way, whether that's going through your email at two in the morning or not saying that thing that you really want to say to your boss, the chief exec, notice that you're doing it. And then it, this just takes a few seconds in your mind just to position it as a choice. So, okay, so I can now either choose to keep looking at my emails at two in the morning and I can choose not to say anything to my boss what are the gains of that and what are the losses of that? Mm. Or I could make another choice, which is I could choose to shut my laptop down and go to bed, or I could choose to say that thing. What are the gains of that? What are the losses of that? And then quickly weighing that up in your mind. And you could then think, actually, I'm going to keep looking at my email because the gains of that outweigh the not. Um, and but own your choice. That, there's been a lot of tough love, Hayley, with clients recently. It's like, own your choice because it's a choice you are making. You might you might like to let yourself off the hook that you're not making a choice, that you're being, but you're not. You are making a choice in every given moment, but we don't notice the choices that we're making. And a lot of my clients have come back and, and just said that simple thing has made such a difference to them just feeling in control. And um, uh, the final thing is at a time when we're feeling overwhelmed, we can forget to notice. 
So a trick that a few of my clients have used, so for example, I've got one who's put a post-it note in the corner of her laptop, which is gains versus losses. That acts as a trigger. And I've got another one. He's put alerts on his phone that pop up every couple of hours, which says, are you making conscious choices? Mm. And just taking that moment to take some control and ownership back is important. Some nice tips there. I think um, for me personally, what has given me the greatest gain is probably referencing Melissa's observations and that is getting all over the data. So rapid cycles of data-informed decision-making, probably faster than I would have done a year ago, you know, reviewing everything from the socials to the Google Analytics to, you know, whatever source of data I have, I'm currently triangulating and reassessing, you know, which which direction, um, how am I moving forward? And um, because I think in recognising, it's, it's not that I doubt my intuition, it's not that I doubt my gut, it's recognising that, you know, I am in a different mental state than I would have been six months ago. Um, and so doing the same thing in an altered state is probably not going to be, you know, a healthy way of going forward. Let's go around the traps. The next three months, where does this take us? What recognising that nobody wants to be an expert anymore or a guru, nobody has all the answers. We're just sitting sitting across each other at a metaphorical bar. What's your thoughts for the next three months? Bar went very quiet. <laughs> I, I think that silence is so telling, isn't it? <laughs> I'll, I'll go. So yeah. I'll... Coming at it personally, mm. um, I'm. <laughs> you're all going to laugh at me, going, "Oh, she's so naive." I'm hopeful, and the reason I'm hopeful is because my diary is nearly full yeah. in September and October, and November's filling up. So I think, as as lots of organisations have made sense and recognised, this isn't going away let's just convert everything and do some also some new stuff from a personal perspective as a business owner and a consultant um the fact that i've got loads of work back makes me feel hopeful that organizations are better the organizations that i work with are better navigating that twisty turny road that we're all on um, that's how I feel. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I, I look. I feel hopeful too. I, 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 um, I must say. Um, um, I think, I, I think the the the, set, the second waves around the world have been a real uh, wake up call for for leaders, and I think that isn't should be enough to um, make us all realize that we are in um, a, a state of, of crisis and we need to shift um, up a gear. Or is that down a gear? I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I drove a manual car. Um, uh, you know, um, looking back to the GFC back in you know, um, 2008, um, 
lots of organizations just hunkered down through that period and tried to ride it out. And, and many of them went under, but uh, the organizations who actually invested in innovation and, and attacked the problem on the front foot, um, well, research shows that they, in the States, they, they outperformed the Standard & Poor's Index by 10% through the crisis. And then coming out the other side of the crisis, these companies outperformed the market by 30%. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the statistics are clear. Um, there is great gain to be found in actually uh, innovating through a crisis. So, actually, my, my partner and I have, you know, we decided we would not let the crisis go to waste. And, and we've put together a research business which is specifically for companies that are dealing with uncertainty and, and uh, thinking seriously about innovation. And we put our foot out the door and yes, um, there, there's a lot of interest. So uh, that, that does make me feel hopeful. Awesome. Melissa. Uh, I don't know that I'd say I feel hopeful. I think I feel like there's, there's a lot of work ahead of us. And if I am I guess, addressing my comments to people who work in communication or who are responsible for communication in some way, I think there is a very, very big responsibility on you to create good narrative that is instructive and trustworthy and truthful um, but that doesn't sort of mistakenly even accidentally lead people down wrong paths and I guess I'm I'm reflecting a bit on on what Tim said earlier about that difference between a, a roadmap and levels and I think that there's some something interesting there without wanting to get you know too caught up in sort of terminologies but um, I think that's really interesting I, I've been reflecting a lot on trust I think um you know, there's a saying now that we're not in a post-truth world, we're in a post-trust world. And I think that um, our communication and our media have a, a lot to answer for in that space. And I really do worry about uh, the future of how we digest the information that we need. Um, you know, I, it's, it's difficult to know even whether to trust the the news outlets that you trust, um, and so um, so I think if you're in any way responsible for communication, you have you have a very big responsibility, and you should you know um, I, I'm I'm in mind of the is it Spider Man I think with great power comes great responsibility yeah I think. Um, you know, we're not superheroes, but but we have great power and we need to take that great responsibility very, very seriously right now. So it's it's undies on the outside and <laughs> more more presses with Haley's sketch notes, basically. That's sure. That's how we're gonna digest information. <laughs> lovely, lovely. I think um for me, whilst as I said, I'm I am seeing now that organisations are turning to how do we support our leaders through training and, you know, around their mindset um, and skill set in being more agile. It's a bit of a self-serving observation. I will acknowledge that one too. Um, but I actually think there's something about community 
going to an increasing focus on community. And I think for many of us that will mean different things. I think as we continue to have restricted restrictions through stages, you'll come to depend much more on your local communities, that hyper-localisation that's going on. But I think in business it also means um, looking at strategic partnerships and alliances because your business community will be your safety net. Now, the interesting thing, I guess, is that's probably easier to conceptualise when you run a small business or a consultancy like we do. What, what does community mean to the big Australia Post, the big government agencies, you know, Telstra, those kind of things? Um, got no idea what that actually means. I just have a, a feeling that it's going to become very important in not just surviving, but actually reorienting your whole organisation. So we are coming to the close of this. Uh, the three of you have once again been extraordinarily generous with your time and your thoughts and your humility. If we can go around the room, what would you most like the listeners to know or help you with? How can you? How can our listeners help you with what's going on in your world? Tim. Oh, look, just be kind. I think just, 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 just be kind. We, I know that this has been a theme of of uh, all our discussions, and um, actually, you know, it, it wouldn't have been something I would have said uh, three months ago. But it's it's a reflection of how I've I've learned from uh, our conversations. Um, I think community is really important, uh, um, and I think I think we need to um, we need to just just double down on on building good relationships, being empathetic and kind to one another, because we're going to need a lot of that going forward. So you want people to be more kind to you? <laughs> I we, am we all... sorely mistreated, Jen. If I, you know, if I could explain it to you, I can't. <laughs> Hayley, how can the listeners help you? Um, okay. uh, Recognising there's no shame in asking for help. Um whether that's asking me or any of you. Um, in fact, the best leaders know when to ask for help and who to ask for help. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, it's a bit Jerry Maguire, help me help you. Uh, we're just gonna go around in circles now. So um, for example, I put out on LinkedIn the other day, because people go bonkers from my sketch notes, as you said, Jen. But I, it feels a bit selfish. I draw ones that I'm interested in. So I put a little message out saying, what, what's going to help you? What would you like me to, do, to draw for summary of? One person came back. Oh. So help me help you. Tell me, what, tell me what, what you'd like to learn more about or know more about, and I'll draw it or write about it. Just drop me a line. Okay. Challenge accepted. That's fabulous. Yeah. Melissa, how about yourself? Um... Well, I'm going to take Haley up on that. <laughs> I'm definitely going to ask for something. <laughs> um, I um, I I love Tim's idea about kindness because I, I'm a kindness advocate from way back, and kindness has been a bit of a personal mantra philosophy. I don't know quite what the word is for me for a long time. So I I think kindness in the world. Um, 
you know, it's never been more true that we have to be kind because we just don't know what battles other people are fighting. You know, it's just, it's always been true, but it's especially true now. Um, uh, being a little bit cheeky as well, um, I, along with Jen, we've just um, made our um, weekly collaboration program, Busting Silos, available on demand now. So you can just go to the website and sign up and um, get weekly e-lessons in how to better collaborate with your colleagues and pretty much anyone in your life. Um, so uh, I would also say there's never been a better time to be kind and never been a better time to know how to collaborate with other people. So, um, yeah, check out bustingsilos.com.au. Terrific, terrific. Um, my request of the listeners, I'm getting in with a request. I just think there's been some um, incredible gems dropped in this podcast. Um, this may not have been our smoothest or eloquent podcast we've ever done. I think, you know, the minute we dip into how do we do this from a position of learning out loud and, and being a little bit more um, humble about it, it gets awkward, but that's the point. These conversations are awkward and it's really important to have them out loud. So, um, listeners, if you've got someone you think should listen to it, please share it with them. Um, if you've got leaders in your organisations, please put it on your Yammer, put it on anywhere. We don't care. Um, but uh, we would really welcome you sharing this with the people who you think need to hear it. But for now, um, stay safe, stay well, and stay very, very kind. You've been listening to A Conversation of Change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn? 